This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Lumigo and Dexsecure. This week, Rebecca and I chat with Yvonne Roberts about educating serverless developers. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 121. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly. And I'm Rebecca Marshburn. And this is Serverless Chats. Hey, Rebecca, how are you doing today? Hey, Jeremy. I am actually doing very, very well. I did something really special last night, um, which was went to like the uh, a four-course dinner at a very wow. like esteemed Seattle restaurant. And it was because uh, I asked a friend to help me move. And instead of like what I would have paid for moving services, I was like, mm. I will take us to the nicest place that we've never been in the city. Um, and so it was a really great way to spend those moving dollars. Um, wow. The last time yeah. somebody the last time somebody asked me to help them move, I think we got pizza and beer. So uh, <laughs> your idea is better. We should go with that next time. I like that. Yeah, it was really nice. Uh, how are you? Is there anything you want to talk about before we dive in? No, I mean, I think it's just uh, reinvents right around the corner. And um, and yeah, I'm just getting ready. I'm just getting ready to go. I'm excited. Well, I'm excited too. And I'm also excited to introduce our guest today. Um, not only will she be at reInvent, she'll be speaking at reInvent the Monday evening of reInvent. We'll talk to her a little bit more about that. Our guest today is software architect at Bill.com a speaker, YouTuber, blogger, and AWS serverless hero, which means she's super close to my heart as having been a head coordinator for the serverless heroes program, Yvonne Roberts. Hello, Yvonne. Thank you so much for joining us. Woohoo. Hello. It's so nice to be here. This is so exciting to talk to you guys about serverless and all the magical stuff um, happening. Well, I mean, we're, we're excited to have you here. And one of the things that I love about your story and I, you know, we, we, we try to do some research on our guests and look and, and, you know, see all the things that they're doing. And of course we've, uh, you know, you, you've been in the, in the space for, for quite some time. And obviously Rebecca knows you from the, the, the serverless heroes program, but what was interesting is just learning more about your background. Um, you have a non-traditional background, right? You, uh, I think, I think I heard somewhere that you started out by maybe designing t-shirts or something like that. Right. Um, and I then did. you go from designing t-shirts, um, and then you end up becoming an AWS serverless hero, working for Bill.com. Um, you know, now as a as a software architect. So I love I love hearing these types of stories where um, you sort of start off, you know, doing something else, and then you make this transition into tech. So I'm just really curious if you could tell the listeners a little bit about what your journey into tech was like, and and sort of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so you're right. Um, my first job out of college was to be a t-shirt designer. Um, I literally was coloring for, I don't know, actually, I don't know how much I was paid back then, but it seemed like a lot to me back then, I'm sure. Um, and, and all I had to do was take these little like clip art images and fill in the colors. And there's this whole concept of like for t-shirt printing that the colors have to overlap and all these little nuances that you have to like measure and calculate and so on and so forth, which was really cool to get paid to do that, I think. Um, but I was really curious about computers and how it made life easier. Um, I, I would like do like these little mini scripts for like, what is it, Adobe? I don't remember what their desktop app was for, for or Illustrator, I think yes, it was. Yes, Illustrator, yeah. 
There you go. Uh, so for Adobe Illustrator, you could create cl um, scripts that would then like replicate your little image multiple times on the page and like doing little oh, actions, things like that. Right? Were they called like actions or something like that? I think so. You know, right. I, like honestly, I am not going to say how many years ago this was, but it was a while ago and my memory does not serve very well that far. Um, but I, I really enjoyed that, like being able to outsource my manual labor to a computer and, and like that whole concept of like tinkering and, and playing with things and seeing how they break and then fixing them um, was really cool to me. Uh, I at that same T-shirt company, I started working on their website and helping them make updates and like make it not obvious that I had changed a lot of things. Like it still looked like whoever they paid way back when to design it. Um, and and I just it just built um, on from there. Um, then I started doing like web design and designing email blasts and things like that. And and the more I got into it, the more I realized, okay, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Um, I want um, the paper to prove that I can do this so that somebody will hire me. And so I, I, I took a risk. I, I went to school at night and, and I worked on that comp sci degree to prove that I could do this. This was a lot of fun. I love this. And please hire me today. <laughs> and it sounds like you're still loving it. Is this a, can I be correct in making that assumption? Yeah, I, I definitely do. Like, so um, I'm, I'm working at build.com right now. It's, it's a new position for me. And so I'm, I'm, going along this journey of showing them like the magic of serverless, right? Mm -hmm. Because to me, honestly, serverless is magic. Um, and and I, my first like gig into like demoing this is creating this tic-tac-toe app, you know, that's serverless and I don't have to worry about a relational database or anything like that. So um, like that was a lot of fun to me to be able to say, you know, for the last week I've been paid to create a tic-tac-toe game. <laughs> Um, to be able to teach a lot of these really cool concepts to my coworkers. Yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, speaking of serverless, this is a serverless podcast. Um, so I'm I'm curious. So you you go through this process, and I think you got a you got a master's in computer science, right? Like so you and then you worked with I think sorry on your resume you worked with like you know EC2 and some of those other things that you probably had to. So like what was it that when you I mean first of all how did you discover serverless? Um, and then sort of once you did you know what was like you know what what did you think was magic about it or what really drew you to say yeah this is this is how I want to build applications. Um, let's see. So how did I start with serverless? I think while I was working on that, that master's program, there was a project where we had to create like an FTP application with S3 backing it, mm -hmm. which um, was pretty neat because again, there were no servers in that. And while I think it's a little bit of a stretch to say that S3 is serverless, um, I liked the cool part of not having to worry about that hard part of a server and storing data. And I think it, it just kind of built from there. Um, when was it 2015 that Lambda was um, 20, end of 2014? Yes. End of 2014. Yeah. There you go. Um, and, and when that was announced, it was it was pretty cool. I one of my coworkers had started tinkering with it. And it was just so cool to be able to see like how much he was able to accomplish. I went on to play with it and I created like one of those, you know, like gift beacons that you put in an email. Right. So yeah. you'd be able to track if somebody opened it and so on and so forth. And to be able to have something up and running so quickly with 
like out much heavy lifting to me was just like, wow, like this is where it's at. I will never SSH into another EC2 instance again. <laughs> I'm not going to do that whole like get a Java heap dump or all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and that's kind of like where it started for me and, and just kept getting deeper and deeper into it. So I wanted to go into this a little bit more, and you, you sort of already uh, cats out of the bag in terms of Lambda being announced in, in late 2014. Um, okay, so in 2013, you were at Financial Engines. In late 2014, Lambda was just getting started. And by 2016, you were establishing patterns and development processes for serverless microservices based architectures using, I would say, you know, getting the whole band together, almost Lambda, API Gateway, DynamoDB at that time. Um, and so while that's like a long time ago for you, there are lots of companies just now who are starting to ask themselves like whether we should go down this route. Lots of teams are trying to secure internal buy-in. And so I'm wondering if if you can get in the Wayback Machine, can you share a bit about how those internal conversations went for you? And if there were like specific metrics or outcomes that enabled you to convince the organization that this was the direction to move in? You know, um, I think at that point, it really was about empowerment. The manager I had was more of like, okay, there's this new toy I heard of, see what you can do with it. And and was, and was really gave us like this really opened, um, I, I don't know what the right word is, but, but there wasn't like a set requirement. Like you have to accomplish this, you have to do this, you have to do that. Um, and it really was just try it, see what happens. Um, some of my coworkers had started and I came in on the tail end creating an app for um, EV concierge is what we called it, where basically um, folks at the company could register to reserve a spot to be able to charge their car downstairs in the garage, you know. And and so we we pretty much got to do whatever we want. We ran into issues. We um, at in the beginning actually we actually used uh, what is it called now serverless Inc or serverless framework. Serverless framework. Um, uh, that that you work with very well. Um, so so we actually started out with that. There were some issues we had here and there, and then we like kept iterating like on that pattern on what made it easier for each additional microservice um, to get rolled out. Um, and, and that was really cool. It, for him, what that metric was, what that outcome was, was that a team could take a business case, take a use case, and roll that to production like within you know days instead of weeks and having to deal with like procurement of like EC, uh, well, at that point was an EC2, we were in on-premises. Um, and so you had to, you know, get an actual server. Um, and, and so to be able to pivot from that and be able to get teams to onboard actual business use cases that provided income for the company, that provided ease of use for our end users, um, improve latency on some of our services as well, like that, that really was what he was looking for. And like, to your point, like going back into the Wayback Machine, I think back then I did not realize how big or like how like what I was really achieving right like I didn't realize how early on we were on that journey and how like you said there's a lot of companies that haven't really started doing this and they're just now asking that question could this really give me something is there really a benefit here and and you're right like it's, it's a little humbling like little old me <laughs> Um, but it, but it's also pretty cool because like I've tried so many different things and I can tell you how it will or won't. 
um, work. I think and go from there. I think that's interesting about um, you know that your boss was sort of like, uh, or your manager at that time was sort of like, you know, do whatever you need to do to accomplish what needs to happen. Because there's so many engineering managers, I think, still now who are like, oh no, this is what we do here. Like these are the platforms we build on. Here are the only allowed tools and so forth. Um, so was that was is that something you've seen? I mean, you, you've worked for a couple of different companies now, and I'm curious with with Bill.com actually, considering that uh, you seem to be sort of advocating for serverless there, um, which is awesome. Um, I mean, have you seen that uh, generally, where you would have engineering managers that would would kind of push you into the serverless, or at least let you experiment with it, um, or has it has it been you know sort of few and far between? I think at the end of the day, companies need to like allocate a set of resources, a set of engineers to do this sort of tinkering, because you're right, you know, if a business manager has these metrics, these business goals that they have to meet, um, to to reserve, you know, a month is probably painful and, and frankly hard, right? And so if, t- if companies can come to the table and say, okay, we're going to take these three engineers and we're going to let them tinker for the rest of the company, and then let them define those patterns so that The business managers that don't have the time to give can then say, okay, here are all the patterns, here are the quick how-tos, you know, one, two, three, four, do this, um, to be able to meet my business metrics. I think a lot of companies will have success um, in in adopting some of these more modern architectures and, and then at the end of the day, help their end users, their customers. Yeah. And I think you said earlier, you know, that in terms of your role at Bill.com, that really what you're doing there is helping modernize um, what it is that they're doing. So I'm curious how much you can share in terms of like, where are they now? Are they are they traditional EC2 or traditional virtual machines or on-prem? I'm sure they're not on-prem, but I mean, I don't know, maybe they are. Um, but is that what the goal is? Is that is that part of your, your you joining the team is really this effort to modernize what Bill.com is doing? It is it, like that's that's pretty much my job description, right? Help us modernize um, our application. Um, yeah, they are on premises. You know, wow, they okay. they do have workloads on premises that will probably have to stay there. Um, but there is a, a desire to be able to build faster, to be able to grow faster. You know, we recently purchased two companies, right? We have um, Invoice to Go, and we have um, Divi that really expand our product offering for our end users, right? But that also means that our growth, our opportunity of growth, you know, can increase like, you know, five, 10 plus X, Um, whatever that amount is, our software developers need to be able to quickly build features that meet the needs of those end users. Um, and, And with that, you know, monolithic architecture that a lot of companies have these days, that gets very difficult, right? There, there's a lot of process there. You, you are limited to, you know, maybe um, monthly releases, weekly releases. You know, it, it's not common that you can have a, a monolithic application that you can deploy, you know, three times a day, for example. And so what I'm really coming in to do is kind of help them do that, help them take, you know, the the set of microservices that they have today and build on that, make those have concrete um, patterns that they can replicate across microservices to decrease that that you know time that window out the door to production right 
it's a lot of fun. I, I think there's a lot of opportunity there and um, we definitely need the help. So if anybody is looking for work, <laughs> Java developer, um, I would definitely enjoy working with you. <laughs> We'll put like a little audio, like ding, hiring, just <laughs> like hiring. a nice little overlay. Um, well, I, I, first of all, I think it's, uh, I think it's amazing that um, te- that that companies are doing this and are modernizing. And there's just so much. There's there's so many opportunities for developers right now. So even if somebody's there working on designing um, t-shirts right now, and you're thinking about this, you know, getting into tech is there's a lot, there's a lot of work in tech right now. Um, And I think it's going to just keep getting bigger and bigger. But um, just bringing it back to the to the build.com thing, though, in terms of I mean, you talked a lot about microservices and patterns and some of these things that you see, um, you know, Going in and sort of looking, and I can imagine the first, you know, the, I know the first few days or weeks or sometimes months at a new company can be a little bit overwhelming trying to understand, like, why did you do that? Why did you make that choice? You know, trying to figure out that architecture. But I'm just curious, is that something where you've you've kind of you've had a little bit of a time, a little bit of time to breathe some of this in? Um, are you already seeing immediately places where you say, like, oh, yeah, this pattern will apply to that and this pattern will apply to that. And yeah, if we rip this out and replace it with SQS or EventBridge or whatever it'll be so much better have you I mean is it are those ideas already in your head oh yeah I mean I have like this long mental list um I I will neither confirm or deny that it's in a google doc and there are (laughs) multiple pages and really it's just bullet points so you can get (laughs) a picture of how much it really is um But yeah, I mean, I think the more you kind of work with these technologies, the more patterns you can quickly identify. I think for me personally, and and maybe even a lot of architects out there, when you have that long list, you kind of just want to attack all of it. (laughs) And, And I think what's really important, and it's actually what I'm talking about at reInvent, is this whole concept of an MVP, of starting small, of taking a little chunk, a little slice, you know, it's like the whole strangler fig pattern, you know, and just take a tiny little bit, move it, see what happens, exercise that code and iterate on that, and then bring a little bit more. Um, That that whole concept of like an MVP, I think cannot be stressed um, anymore of like how critical and how important it is. Like to your point, you know, taking a monolithic application that is like, you know, millions of lines of code, you know, you, you can't really like feasibly say, okay, well, you know, in three months, this is all going to be out of there. It's going to be serverless. It's going to be perfect. Um, that that doesn't always work out that way. Um, but I think realistically and also cognitively, right, for engineers to be able to like take these pal- palatable um, steps to, to one by one, take a little feature, move that feature, move that here. Um, so so that's, that's my challenge right now is trying to get that whole like, MVP feature phased approach, um, but but there is the long list I have. <laughs> Hi everyone, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor Lumigo. We've talked a lot about observability on this podcast, and if you've listened to any of those episodes, then you know that it can be difficult to achieve serverless observability with traditional approaches. Though serverless comes with many opportunities and advantages, it also has some unique issues that some tools just aren't able to address. And those issues really need something meant for serverless environments. 
That's where Lumigo comes in. As a serverless-first monitoring platform, Lumigo lets developers quickly and easily find and fix errors and performance issues while also giving you an end-to-end -end view of the entire transaction across services and functions. All of the debugging information you need is conveniently in one place, and you're able to set up alerts so that you know what's happening and how it might affect the user experience. Lumigo also knows how to play nice with your existing toolchain, enabling you to send alerts to email, Slack, Microsoft Teams, Ops Genie, and more, and can also create tickets in Jira straight from the issues page. Thanks to their automatic distributed tracing, it only takes four clicks to set up Lumigo with no manual code changes necessary. Sign up for free at Lumigo.io. So you do a really great job uh, talking about these types of topics on your blog. And then I'm so glad that you're bringing it this one specifically to reinvent to talk about building an MVP. But you also cover like other essential topics. Um, and I would say like pervasive and persistent and all the other words that start with P um, of these questions that we constantly hear, right? Like recently you wrote about how to choose a database on AWS. And at the time of writing, you were like, by the way, there are 15 options or more than 15 options. Um, and so we have been asking our guests lately, especially those who ascribe to, you know, ascribe to the serverless is, is magic because it can reduce your work and it can reduce like this, the, the over complexification of all these different things. And there are so many abstracted things abstracted away. Um, but as we see capabilities for serverless and, you know, different services come on to then help you achieve more with serverless, there's maybe a, a friction between like simplicity or reduction to this other like movement of like, potential for over complexification, if that's even a word I can say. Um, so I'm wondering if you would share your thoughts around the growing, not shrinking capabilities being added to the serverless portfolio and, and how you sort of approach that, that idea of like serverless is magic and, and can offer reduction, but also there's all these like, you know, there's more than 15 ways to do everything with every service at AWS. Yeah, I, I think what, what it's sometimes difficult, but what needs to happen is you kind of have to just try it, right? So, and sometimes you might start, to your point, start simple and see what works and what doesn't work and, and might realize that, for example, okay, well, I need more memory on this Lambda and you keep upping it and upping it and upping it and it's still not performing. And then you realize, okay, well, actually I need more CPUs. So, you know, let me look and see what is my next option. Like, how do I go from like having little responsibility to kind of growing that responsibility to meet your business case, right? And and these new features, like, you know, serverless um, uh, Fargate now, right? That, that whole concept of serverless containers. And, and like start growing out into these other services that do require maybe a little bit more heavy lifting than you originally intended. Um, I think I think it's important to start start small and then like code in that flexibility to be able to grow and try other features. And sometimes it actually goes the other way around. Like for example, having Apollo server on a Lambda or you know realize okay now we have AppSync. How can we leverage that to kind of outsource even more heavy lifting? Right. It, it's it's kind of like a constant moving dance. Right. Um, and, and to be able to have flexibility in your application, to be able to make those moves, um, I think is really important, but also to be like judicious about it, right? Because I could say, well, let me move to AppSync because I just don't want to deal with this anymore. But you might actually look and realize, well, the amount of time I'm managing this Lambda is actually pretty low. There's not much effort that I'm I'm 
pulling here. And okay, but I'm gonna have to pay like 50 cents more per request on AppSec, for example. And I'm kind of throwing numbers out there. Uh, but but basically, you might realize, you know, that move might not be worth it at this time. Like t spending the engineering effort might be more costly. And, and it's really like constantly evaluating, constantly reassessing your application. Um, like that observability is so key, right? To be able to say, okay, this service is working for me. Oh, this new service that just released might give me like 10x growth or something like that, which I think is pretty awesome. But, but you kind of have to stay almost like on the pulse of like news and information and education. Um, our, our, our field like changes every day. So. <laughs> well, I, and I, and I think that's, I think that's kind of the point Rebecca was trying to make too, is that the complexity itself is it's like the complexity of choice is one or the cognitive load that's created by, you know, whether it's, do I run Apollo on Lambda? Do I, uh, do I use AppSync? Um, you know, there, there's obviously the choice there, but there's also this choice where, and, and like you said, keeping up with the education, because if you don't know that like, you know, Lambda functions now do batch windows or that there's like the, how the different modes of SQS in terms of like, whether you're using FIFO or, uh, or you're using regular SQS and then what's the drawbacks versus using event bridge and then API destinations. I mean, we just add all these things that I think most people would be, or most developers are probably used to saying, well, I have a execution environment somewhere and maybe I interact with a, par a third party service, um, you know, but like even something like, you know, handling uh, dead letter queues or, um, you know, error uh, handling and some of these other things that are now built into, um, you know, built into the cloud, built into the connections between the code and the service or something like uh, step functions where you don't even have to write any code anymore. Like all this stuff is sort of done uh, and managed and transformed between these steps. Uh, I mean, I think that's the that's the thing that, you know, we hear a lot of our guests talking about is just to say like, yeah, I mean, you need to really keep up um, on all the new things. And especially as somebody new coming into serverless, like there's just a wall of information that I, I can see, you know, really overwhelming people. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I will neither confirm or deny that I do feel overwhelmed <laughs> from one moment to the next. Um, but but it is it is a challenge. Right. And it, there's a lot of resources out there, like things that, you know, that you and Rebecca are doing. I mean, I think is great. Right. To kind of get those bits in small consumable um forms is, is really awesome. Well, thank you. We're blushing. For those listeners who can't see us, we are blushing. Um, <laughs> so two of the topics that you've discussed in the past have been microservices and, uh, oh, we talked about this hexagonal, hexa hexagonal, hexagonal, hexagonal I say architecture. Hexagonal. I know, yeah. Microservices <laughs> and hexagonal or hexagonal architecture yeah. sort of my two favorite topics. So <laughs> Yeah, they happen to be two of Jeremy's favorite topics. And so I'm gonna like, you know, toss this, I'm gonna dev to opposite, toss it over the wall to him. But um first, before I do that, if you could explain a little bit to our listeners who might be unfamiliar with the term, what is a hexagonal architecture? Like what, you know, what are the main benefits of it? And then I'll let Jeremy take it from here. Yeah. Um, so, so the, you might notice I use magic a lot. I apologize. Um, but the magic of hexagonal architecture, I really, um, think is, is that whole loosely coupled components. It's, it's a way of organizing your code where you can, you know, swap out different implementations 
or you can, you know, test really small areas, you know, there, there's unit testing, there's integration testing and hexagonal architecture, I think really makes integration testing much easier, um, to, to do that. Um, I think one of the benefits, for example, I was talking about this at work recently. One of the benefits that I think a lot of times get overlooked is you have engineering teams that let's say you have five engineers plus, right? Working on one project and one microservice. And you can imagine that having hexagonal architecture, having all these loosely coupled components, let's engineer focused on the database layer. Let's engineer to, you know, focus on the use cases. Let's another engineer focus on, for example, the, the REST API layer. And everybody's working without getting into like Git merge hell, which I think is definitely in and of itself, like one of the amazing reasons to, to adopt that. Um, but but I, I would say like that one liner is like this loosely coupled organization of your code that makes you makes life easier. Yeah. And I like how you use loosely coupled, which is a term that comes from microservices or it's a term used in microservices. But I think that's an interesting and that's one of the things that I love about hexagonal uh, hexagonal architecture <laughs> is that um, uh, is that you do have that ability to create those interfaces between you know ports and adapters is another right. way to sort of look at it um, you do have the way to create those interfaces between two different things which also helps um, you know with things like dependency injection so you can say I'm not calling my real database I'm just calling this mock of my database but I have a standard interface to it and then other people can use those standard interfaces and I've always found too that starting with and hexagonal architecture or starting with ports and adapters is a really great way to then think about planning your application and start understanding it so you can kind of move into that microservice space where you actually say like okay this user you know this user adapter that I have that that does looks look up of users it adds new users it removes them maybe it you know does some flagging of them or whatever that maybe this does need to be moved into its own separate service and do all the information hiding and scale independently and deploy independently and so forth. Um, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on microservices, especially for companies that are just getting started. Because I tend to see a lot of companies who are like, all right, we're going to build our first version of our app and we're going to build 15 microservices to support it. Um, I think this probably ties back into your reinvent, reinvent talk about MVPs and maybe where some of these companies should be starting. You know, that's that's interesting. Like a lot of times I think uh, even as as an architect myself, you know, when I, I look at a business use case, I already start like grouping things automatically. And I'm like, OK, well, this goes there. This goes there. This is that. And and that knee jerk reaction is saying to you to your point. Right. That's 15 microservices to support this one use case. Um, I think sometimes that's not actually beneficial, right? And, and there's a lot more maintenance. There's a there's these all these different pipelines and coordinating deployments and making sure backwards compatibility and and all that. That a lot of times I think it's it's perfectly okay to say I'm gonna start with let's say for example a lambda lift that supports you know these twenty use cases, and then in code have different bounded contexts that would have its own little hexagonal architectures, all cute and organized in code. Um, and 
Um, then, you know, as you see, like to your point, right, as you see one of them growing obscenely, you say, you know what, in retrospect, that should have been its own microservice. But because I have it organized in hexagonal architecture, it's all these loosely coupled components in this application, like ripping that out after the fact is a lot easier um, to do. And, and I will neither confirm or deny that I have actually done all of these things, <laughs> <laughs> both the doing too many microservices and then realizing that this tiny little microservice that only had 100 lines really should have never lived by itself, um, <laughs> as well as basically making little lambda lists that were not little at all. <laughs> well, I, I will confirm that I have done all of these things. I, I built a, uh, I, I had started a new project. Now, this was a second, uh, what do they call it, second version syndrome or whatever it is, where we were rebuilding something that already existed. Um, and I immediately jumped down, like I already know the content, I already know the bounded context, I already know the services that need to be created. And I went right down that path of creating all microservices um, and it was just me. I was, so I was like, why am I building separate deployable services just for me? Um, and then I quickly realized, you know, when I say quickly, about a month and a half in, I was like, why did I do it this way? This was the worst idea. Now, I have built plenty of other microservices that have worked perfectly because they were on larger teams and so forth. Um, but yeah, I think that I think that's good advice. I think you think about it. And this is this is why thinking in hexagonal architecture or building that using that pattern is so important, especially when it comes to growth, because then it is so much easier to just say, oh, well, my, now my uh, my port that connects to this user, you know, adapter, now it just connects to this user service. Now, again, there's all kinds of, you know, there's all kinds of issues and complexity with, you know, separating things out into separate services, but I think it gets you a lot closer and it's not like you have to refactor the entire application to make it work. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it really does. It does simplify that process. And, and as like architects and designing software, like that is probably one of my like top um, design patterns that I think like everybody should do, which probably might make me a little annoying to some of my coworkers. And I apologize if you're listening to this. I'm sorry. <laughs> but but I like to have that organization like it really gets me excited. <laughs> Hi everyone, I wanna take a moment to thank our sponsor, OpenDeckSecure. OpenDeckSecure is an open source, cloud agnostic edge development framework that lets developers jump straight into product development without worrying about setup. OpenDeckSecure has frameworks and development tools to automate web asset optimization, implement resilient CDNs, and provide you with access to first party analytics. If you need help getting started on multi-cloud serverless at the edge, take a look at OpenDeckSecure to simplify the setup and start building the product you're passionate about. Learn more at DeckSecure.com open source. And if you like or support what DeckSecure is doing, join the community by visiting their project on GitHub and follow them on their journey. So I think, I mean, whether or not you have or have not done all of these things uh, and you have or have not uh, taken lessons from them, which I think we know that you've likely done and then learned a lot from them, you actively <laughs> share all this education around these things that you have or have not done or have done. <laughs> um, so you do that through your blog, you know, YouTube. And I'm wondering, like, as you see your audience, like, you know, coming back to keep learning from you, if you see a pattern of questions emerging from them, like, what are these things that they're keeping like, Yvonne, please, like, will you cover this, right? Like, what are, what do you see in terms of people trying to build and they keep getting stuck if there are like certain 
emerging questions that you're like, okay, this is like what we constantly hear. There probably needs to be more education around this. Um, more people screaming from the rooftops in, in terms of trying to help answer some of these like pressing burning questions. I think the biggest question I get is really around observability. And and honestly, it's it's between, you know, software developers who've been doing this for years and they're used to that traditional, you know, three-tier web application, for example. And then folks that are doing this brand new, they've never done serverless before. And it's just understanding what my application is doing, how it's doing what it's doing. And if something goes wrong and things hit the fan, you know, like how to figure out um, how to solve that, right? And figure out what's going on. I think observability is hard. And, And I think that like the better that we get as like content creators to be able to simplify giving clear lists, clear set of patterns, um, I think that'd be better, you know, for, for all people from different experience. I I think that's what surprised me the most. I guess I, I I would have thought, you know, observability might've been difficult for someone coming from three tier web application because it was hard for me. Um, and, and so that, that's kind of like one of the surprising things, right? It's like beginners alike. It's, it's a hard concept to understand, um, especially with Lambda and the way it deploys and, and what you can or can't get out of that running instance um, has been really interesting for me. Yeah, I, I think uh, observability is definitely, I mean, I think just serverless architecture, thinking about it differently, event driven, that's, you know, people are so used to like, you know, request response. Um, like I may, I, I tell the server to do something, it responds back to me. Um, right. So this idea of asynchronous patterns and all those other things get kind of complex. But um, but speaking, you know, again, more about the education stuff that you're doing out there, uh, you know, I'm a content creator. We've had a lot of content creators on the show. Um, and I know for me, one of the most rewarding things is when, you know, you you get confirmation that you helped somebody, right? Like somebody's like, I read this, I watched that, it, it helped me, it got me to do X, Y, Z. Um, I'm just curious, have you had those experiences and or, or what else, like what else has been sort of the most rewarding you know, things that you've gotten out of uh, producing this content? I, I think it's it's that. It's the, you know, I'm a developer. I'm trying to build this use case. I don't have time. There's a crunch. I'm going to use my amazing Google um, skills and Stack Overflow <laughs> skills and get an answer yesterday. Um, and, and time and time again, like having folks say, you know what? I found your blog post. It clearly gave me the steps that I needed to take. I spent two days struggling with this, and then I solved it in five minutes after reading your post. And and I find that like so rewarding, right? Because I feel like a lot of times I went through those same mm-hmm. pains. And like to to your Rebecca, your question before, right? Like going in my way back machine of when serverless started, and I mean everything that I struggled with, there was not much out there, right? Because it was new, it was shiny, and not a lot of people were doing it then. And so, like to be able to like speak to my five year, six year ago self, and then create content for people who are starting now, um, I think it's pretty cool, right? Uh, to be able to say like I saved that person a week of work, and I know I saved them a week of work because it took me a week <laughs> to solve this problem. Um, And it might not even be time at that point, right? You're kind of, you're probably saving some people from like tears, like, because you get so frustrated, you can't find, you know, it's like more than time. You're saving like sanity. Oh, I I will, that I'll admit, I've definitely shed tears. Why doesn't it work? This looks like it should work. Everything is in line and pretty and perfect. 
oh, by the way, you have to add this to CloudFormation and then suddenly it works. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other the other day, this is a front end use case, but I was doing something with Axios and um, I switched from a post to a get and I forgot to put the data in as the second object and said was passing my headers into the second object and I was literally banging my head on the desk trying to figure out what it was that I did wrong. Um, but the other thing, so you also mentioned, you know, again, you're able to find this thing, it saves, you know, or find a piece of content, helps you out. Um, and I think that, you know, lots of people can produce content. Um, there's not a ton of people that can produce content well um, and, and can really kind of get to where it needs to be. And, and the videos on your site, they look great. They're all well produced, which is great. The other thing that I tend to find frustrating when I go and I'm trying to search for an answer for something is I'll click through to the first link. It'll be like a 700,000 word blog post that, you know, goes into the history of, you know, Unix or something <laughs> like that before it gets to the simple answer that I need. Um, and those kind of things are frustrating. Now, I, I think some of those long form posts work great, but also just being able to present clear answers, get people to where they need to be. I think you do a great job of that. And again, your content is really, really well produced. Um, and I'm just curious, like for you, that I think that skill probably helps you out. Um, but I mean, in terms of you being able to do that sort of stuff, have you found that that actually helps your career too? Like, you know, people, I mean, bill.com is bill.com a result of all of this effort you've put into creating content as well as obviously your, your experience. It definitely has. It's, I think that's a skill that to your point, not a lot of folks have to be concise, to be, to use simple words like when I started out in my career, I moved to Silicon Valley. I was like, I'm going to get that Silicon Valley job. I have this degree. I am like amazing. Everybody needs to hire me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I remember one of the interviews that came out of it and they gave me feedback and she was like, oh, she doesn't use enough technical terms. And, and I remember thinking like, oh, that's a shame. I yeah. must not know something. Did like, you just say hexagonal, hexagonal yeah. architecture? Is that enough for you? Hire me now. I know it. <laughs> You're like and, pentagonal, and remember, octagonal, you got them all. <laughs> exactly. And, and so I remember being so crushed, like, you know, I'm not going to cut it out. I'm like Silicon Valley, they're just going to eat me alive and spit me out and so on and so forth. But like, as I grew and grew and mature, I realized that, you know, we're not meant to know everything one, which is like, I have to keep repeating that to myself all the time. But but most importantly, being able to speak in plain English speaks to someone. Yes. Um, and, and not everybody is at that academic level. Um, I will admit that still to this day, I have a difficult time transitioning from the plain English to the academic level. I think I still struggle there. Maybe it's like preconceived notions. I don't know. Um, but I, I mean, I think... I think that's important, right? To be able to to speak concisely, to be able to be simple about it and not make it seem something more than it really is. Um, I will also say that this skill not only helped me get the job that I have today, but it's also helped me in my marriage um, because my husband says I am very verbose. And if I want to say <laughs> something, I say, I mean, well, we've been talking for, you know, some 45 minutes. Um, I say a lot. And <laughs> he always has to remind me, he's like, okay, wait a minute, take a deep breath, just tell me what the problem is, and then give me your opinion. <laughs> um, well, you, and, and uh, that has... <laughs> you go, you go. go. Ahead. No, that, that, that has helped me in my marriage because there's probably a lot of times where I'm saying why I feel the way I feel, but I haven't even said what the problem was. And he's like, I can't help you. 
you are on the right podcast because Jeremy and I, neither of us are known for being non-verbose. Like our Correct. questions will be like, hey, we have two paragraphs and now here's the final question. And people are like, how did we get here? Right. Uh, and they're like, oh, and we're out of time. Sorry. I <laughs> yeah, took too much time. time with my question. <laughs> there you um, go. But talking is good. It's fine. <laughs> I do think too, especially if you're trying to build any business that has, you know, an infinite time horizon, you know, air quotes around infinite, but an infinite time horizon is that to start with plain language is the best way to include or invite newcomers in. It's as though you're saying like to a newcomer, if you if you don't want to have, if you only want to have like rigorous expert academics using whatever your product is, then sure, use this like really highfalutin language. But if you're going to get new people in and they try to yeah. get in and they're like, I don't know how to speak this, I can't understand what you're saying, you're just going to lose a lot of potential customers or users or even just fans or advocates because you're like, never mind, this is not for me. And so anyway, I would imagine that starting from the plain language, right, almost like the first principle of the thing and then moving onward or upward or forward or however you might want to call that would be mm-hmm. uh, would likely be the, the best place to start. And I'm I'm now getting to my question, as we know, for verbosity. Um, <laughs> do you think there's value in developers learning these types of skills to create content? So there's certainly like the production side, but I think there's also a really huge skill involved in like being able to quote unquote reduce things to plain language. Um, so I'm wondering if you see certain skill sets that you think are like valuable for developers to have or that they should be um, that you think they perhaps like should be nurturing in themselves um, in terms of yeah. like content creation and like bringing more people into the fold. I think so. So so a couple reasons um, to your point is, uh, you know, them bringing more people into the fold. Right. It likely the likelihood of them speaking the way they speak that somebody else would speak that way too and and speak that same language and that same thought process, I mean, is exponential, right? Like I I think I still could not really talk like a beginner anymore, right? I've been corrupted with hexagonal architecture and now I use that word all the time, right? Um, (laughs) And and I think it's important for developers to be able to to do that, right? Or not that it's important to be able to do that, but they realize the value and the importance of doing that. Um, The other thing I think in general as developers, I think that we really should hone in on is being able to communicate, period. You know, whether it's creating content to get other people in the fold or teach other people, that's one thing. But to be able to communicate to your manager or to your peers and say, this is the idea I have this is why I think it would work. These are the metrics I think we can meet and so on and so forth. I think is really important. Like in in my degrees and, and all the education I've had, there was no class that said, how do I market myself and mm-hmm. how do I market my ideas? And I think that's really important, even just for your own career, like forget content creation for a minute to be able to communicate is I think key to be able to write well and to to write you know plain sentences and to be able to get that thought across in a concise way. I I really think all engineers should learn that. I I know like that's like general education classes in school, and usually we avoid that or we pad our semesters so that we have like not stressful things. Um, but we should really value those classes. I I think those soft skills are really key to to engineers and their success. 
Yeah, and I um I I'm blanking on who it is that the quotes from, but it's uh it was if I had more time I would have written you a shorter letter. Um, you know, I think it's because... either Abraham Lincoln or Ernest Hemingway or of, Mark Twain. I, it could I don't know. We just start naming people. Um, yeah. it could be anyone. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's one of those three. <laughs> Yeah, right. Um, but I think that you're right that the um, like for me, if you say, hey, can you come give a an hour long talk? No problem. Can you give a five minute talk? Probably not. I'll spend the first yes. five minutes like I, I never like if you time box me like that, it's so hard when I do write. I, I tend to, I you know, I usually can go back and, and try to slim some things down. But I always feel like, no, there needs to be more words here. There just needs to be more words. But you're right that that ability to really shrink down, you know, what it is you're trying to say, make it concise, cut out all those filler words and then and, and dumb it down. is not the right word, right? Like you can use you can still um, not. I guess uh, pa uh, patronize someone, right? Uh, with with small words or with with uh, with with non you know uh, acronyms like acronyms drive me nuts when people load up with acronyms. I'm like, oh, what does that mean? And then you search it on Google and you get 50, uh, 50 things that come back for that acronym. Um, but yeah, but I think that's, I, I think that's a, a, I don't know, I'm just, I'm rambling now too. So as you can see, <laughs> I, yeah, I wish I was more prepared. Anyways, um, well, so moving on from this topic, you have a reInvent talk. Um, you mentioned about MVPs. Um, this should be airing, I'm assuming, uh, on the, the Monday of reInvent, which means that your talk is actually tonight, if you are listening to this on Monday, um, uh, what is what, the 29th, 30th, 31st? I don't even know. There's no 30. There's not 31 days in November. Anyways, it's the 35th. It's the 35th of, on the 35th <laughs> of November. Um, anyways, you are giving a reInvent talk, which is awesome. Can you just give us a quick preview of what, what we're going to we're going to see there? Yeah, so my talk is about um, productizing MVPs and, and giving uh, folks a, a series of steps that they could follow that can help that growth from that small little one feature with a bunch of missing things in it into that finalized application that's robust, it's scalable, it's, um, you know, it meets all your end users' needs and, and get out the door yesterday, right? Um, I, I kind of glazing over like all the nuances, but we are going to talk about hexagonal architecture. Perfect. That's definitely there. Um, Spoiler alert. <laughs> there you go. TLDR. Um, exactly. Um, and, and talk about, you know, testing and, and CICD to be able to, you know, automate a lot of these hard things, right? And, and using frameworks and using tools that will, you know, make observability easier, that will make all these different things easier as you do this really hard thing, which is, you know, releasing this productized, fully end-to-end -end, um, application. Um, and, and I'll talk a little bit about my experience, about things that I will neither confirm or deny, <laughs> as, as well as, you know, like some of the wins, some of the great things of, you know, taking um, a project I worked on, I'll talk about like credential microservice that I had to do, right? And it had so many features, like credentialing sounds so easy, right? Username, password, login, you're done. Right. But it's so much more than that. And there's so many nuances that if I sat down and started developing that fully featured application, like I would be here for six months, a year plus. I don't know. And then I would get nothing in front of an end user for a whole year. So people will have to deal with really crappy logins, you know, for a year until I finish my um, product. And, and that's not doesn't work. Right. 
And so I'll talk a little bit of like how I broke that apart and and made these pattern decisions to be able to easily plug in all these missing features and at the end of the day, make end users happy, make, you know, business teams happy and, and meeting goals and metrics. Oh my so gosh, I love, I'm so excited. I love a good concrete real life example and then breaking that down into pieces um, because they do feel so applicable, especially something like credentialing because you're like, that is something we all deal with um, and every, every end user day. deals with. So that is really cool. Officially, that talk is on Monday the 29th, not the... 35th, 35th, like I claimed, um, <laughs> and super excited. So if you're listening to this today on Monday, go check it out this evening at reInvent. Um, and for us today, um, that that's, that's, you have ran us out of our very long-winded questions, Yvonne, but <laughs> wow. our last questions are, um, if people want to learn more about you, where should they find you? Twitter, your website and personal blog, your YouTube channel, channel, and and then we'll we put all these details in the show notes as well. Yeah. Um. So I think the the first place definitely is is follow me on Twitter. Um. I I try Do to it. post <laughs> um, <laughs> frequently or share things that I see. Um. That's I V L O one one. Um, on Twitter, which one day I probably need to do a talk like just on why I have such a weird uh, username. <laughs> but but, you know, we ran out of time and it would take me a long time to explain that. Anyways, the Twitter. mystery. I, hey, there you go. IVLO11 um, is my handle on Twitter. Um, I also have a YouTube channel, serverless dev widgets, dev widgets, one word. Um, I'm probably dating myself using the word widgets. I don't know. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> And then also, um, I have a website, YvonneRoberts.com, which I, I try to be a little more diligent on. I'm not very good at it, but I'm getting better. And that's what matters. Awesome. I think you're being harsh on yourself. Uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed the website. So thank you. It, it was thank great. You, thank you. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Yvonne. And um, looking forward to your reInvent talk. So right. excited. Thank you. thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, I do have one more request. Oh, Absolutely. So the next time you do a song like oh. you did last year with the Lambda and like my shots and all that stuff, yeah. I want in. I really? can sing. I you can sing? kind of oh. sing. I can do this. Okay, I want so in. Okay, so right here Collab. on the podcast, we're going to talk about this right now. So the song, um, I have most of the lyrics written um, to the the um, the song that uh, Angelica sings there, uh, the, the wedding song. I don't know why okay. it's escaping my mind right now. But if you can sing that song, I am in because I because I was thinking to myself, I'm like, I have nobody that can sing this. So if you have Angelica like pipes, then let's go for it. I won't go that far, but I can defend myself, okay. I think. Well, I can. I, I also have um, I, I have software that I can adjust the pitch and so forth. So I don't know, we can we can try to work it out. But that would be that would be great because I've been wanting to do that for a long time. And I'm just like, ah, I'm never going to get to it. There you go. I like it. Let's do it. Awesome. This is the beginning of a beautiful collaboration. This could be I'm amazing. This could be amazing. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Yvonne. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Jeremy so and much. Rebecca. This has been great. It was so fun. And that's this week's serverless chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to Yvonne Roberts for being our guest this week and to our sponsors, Lamigo and Dexecure. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 121. 
For more serverless chat, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter, at Becca Odele, and me, at Jeremy underscore Daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.